listeners, welcome to another episode of the Arcananth Podcast. It's your host, Dr. Michael Rivera here again. This is a podcast where we talk to experts in the fields of anthropology, and I'm so happy to have another guest uh, here today on this episode. Our guest today is Megan Clay-Schulte. Megan, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Hi, Megan. How are you doing today? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm doing good. It's a nice sunny day here. <laughs> yes, it's also very nice here. Um, it's been... Although we've been home and, and stuck, it's been really nice to be able to get outside still and enjoy some nice weather. Mm-hmm. Where are you enjoying your weather at the moment? Um, I'm in Knoxville, Tennessee. Cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, are you normally based in Knoxville? Uh, no, actually, I'm from New Jersey. Um, I moved down here, I guess it's four years ago now to start grad school. Cool. Um, so it's it's been an interesting experience, but I actually mm-hmm. really enjoy it down here. Okay. Yeah. How did you find navigating the situation at the moment? Um, it's been kind of a day-to-day thing. I For classes, it's been really, really interesting. Um, I'm currently taking gross anatomy. So pretty much our entire semester structure has had to change. Um, Obviously, we're not allowed to be dissecting or in the lab anymore. So, Mm -hmm. you know, learning from pictures and and diagrams and things has made Mm -hmm. what's already a a pretty difficult class even harder. But um, I think everyone has been really great at adapting as best as they can and, and trying to make the best out of a, a really confusing situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. For my first question, like I w- I'm really curious to know a little bit more about like your background and how you ended up doing your undergraduate degree in these sorts of areas of law, forensics, anthropology, anatomy. Yeah. Um, so I went to undergrad at Monmouth University in New Jersey. And it's interesting because I, I actually went into school thinking I was going to do archaeology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had been saying that my mom says since I was little, um, every year just kept writing, I want to be an archaeologist, want to be an archaeologist. And I never changed my mind. <laughs> yeah. Um, and Maybe then... Like, uh, were you like, uh, I don't know, digging in the garden? Uh, or <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I always knew I didn't want to sit in an office. Um, I knew I wanted to work outside and not necessarily work like a typical nine to five type of situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just always really loved history and, and what we could learn from it. And I don't know, I just, I just found the idea of learning about other people a lot more interesting than, than, you know, again, sitting at a desk or working in an office and things like that. Mm -hmm, So yeah, I went to, I went to Monmouth, um, was doing anthropology, archeology. Um, and I went on my first field school. Uh, it was an excavation at Port Charles on the Island of Nevis in the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. And it was a, it was a great experience. Um, but I, and I loved every second of it, but I came back and I told my advisor, I kind of had this feeling that it wasn't everything that I thought it was going to be, or I had this feeling that something was kind of missing. Mm. Um, and he suggested a different field school the following summer, which was ran by Dr. Thomas Christ, who teaches up at Utica College in New York. Mm. Um, and it was a field school to Europe. We went to Albania and Romania, and it was a forensics-based field school. And we got to work with these remains that were... Um, of ancient Roman citizens who had been work, uh, living at this site that we were at mm-hmm. called Butrent. And the first day, it all felt like it clicked for me, which I know sounds incredibly corny. <laughs> but um, it was amazing to me how much you could learn from a skeleton, um, how much it told you about these people and their lives and their experiences. 
And I came back and I was hooked and I decided to apply for UT Mm -hmm. or for University of Tennessee. And um, I got in and have never looked back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I know in uh, more recent years, you have definitely more concentrated on the interactions between the living and the dead in uh, medical examiner offices or or coroner offices. And where did that inspiration come from to enter medical legal areas of anthropology Mm -hmm. in this way? Um, I, I was really forensics focused. I was really interested in human identification methods, mm-hmm. um, the handling of kind of mass disaster, mass grave situations, human rights, things like that. And um, the more training I got at UT, especially as part of our disasters, displacement, and human rights program, mm-hmm. and the, the the focus on a more holistic approach to anthropology, the more I, I started to see that there really is a constant connection between the living and, and those who have passed. Um, and I think it became more apparent to me that the time in between those didn't necessarily matter as much. Um, and I, it was in a very casual conversation with a colleague where she was mentioning um, the kind of the contract services that she supplied to medical examiner and corner offices. You know, they routinely, if they don't hire an anthropologist or they don't employ an anthropologist, mm-hmm. they routinely send pictures or call and say, hey, you know, is this bone, is this human or is it not? Um, you know, quick questions like that. Mm-hmm. And she was really surprised with how often they would mistake uh, like dog bones for juvenile bones or um, any sort of animal bone for human and things like that. And it, it really, it started to just kind of get the wheels turning about how often the offices that are responsible to investigate death and handle remains and things like that um, don't always have the ability to do so, not any fault of their own. Mm-hmm. It's just the differences in training that medical examiners or coroners get versus anthropologists and how they're often seen to overlap, but the training that they get is incredibly different. Mm -hmm. Um, And the skills that they can contribute to that process are are really Mm -hmm. different. I I love doing this podcast because like I can listen to people who actually um, understand how different bodies or different institutions, different companies uh, work. And on the previous episodes, um, I've had people who do research in forensic anthropology. Um, I've had people who who go abroad and help with disaster um, relief. I don't think I've had anybody who has looked at the, the, the medical, the coroner offices before. And you'd be the perfect person to explain what those offices, uh, what their remit is, what their responsibility is in, uh, in our society. Sure. Um, I think it's, when I started this, I, I knew very little about them. Um, and that was kind of part of the interesting, one of the interesting things about all of this, because the history of these offices is incredibly interesting. Hmm. Um, it's actually a, a layover from the English system and it was brought over with a lot of the other traditions that were brought over with the colonists. And um, coroners were really political positions, um, elected, appointed individuals whose responsibilities were pretty pretty minimal. Um, obviously, they had zero medical training whatsoever. Um, <laughs> a lot of it is really intertwined with... Um, bribes and people using it as political stepping stones and things like that. So 
for anyone who's listening, I would really encourage you to kind of delve into more of that history because it's it's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. But I also think it's something that we don't we don't think about very often. Mm-hmm. Um, people, I don't think on a daily basis, really consider who it is that that handles the dead, um, what that mechanism looks like, what those institutions look like, and things like that. Mm-hmm. But here in the States, um, the medical examiner coroner system is a, a nationwide system, but it's actually dictated on a state-by-state basis. So there's a lot of variation between states on how they handle death investigation. Mm-hmm. So some states have just coroners, um, whether that be a county coroner um, or or kind of a broader coroner system. Some states just have medical examiners. Sometimes those are regional medical examiners or they just have a state medical examiner, depending on how big the state is and what the kind of the demand is. Mm-hmm. And then some states have a mixed system. So they have regional coron- or medical examiners, but then they also have smaller county coroners. Mm. And so kind of navigating the system can be relatively confusing also because it changes state to state mm-hmm. um, on, on like what that system looks like and kind of what the, the relationship between coroners and medical examiners are. Mm-hmm. But the big, the big distinction, and I think sometimes those words are used interchangeably, but medical examiners have to be forensic pathologists. So they have to have that medical training. They're allowed to do autopsies and things like that. Whereas coroners are often still elected in many places. And the minimum requirement for that is just the high school education. So they don't do autopsies or sign death certificates or things like that. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a really important distinction because the responsibilities of those two positions are, are actually relatively drastically different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and are there uh, any, I don't know, uh, groups or um, maybe like even at the top levels of government efforts to try and standardize this? Or does it not make any sense to standardize it because each state would have, uh, you know, particular uh, histories and particular uh, political systems or ways of doing things and, and cultures that, that that wouldn't really make sense? There's a few things that are standard across the board. So there's the National Association of Medical Examiners, and they're kind of touted as the the organization that that is really working to, like you were saying, standardize death investigation, um, standardize what the qualifications are, mm-hmm. what makes an office like a, a legitimate functioning office and things like that. So they actually offer an accreditation program through NAME. Hmm. And that's, sorry, that's the acronym for National Association of Medical Examiners. Um, hmm. And they, they offer this accreditation for offices, which is very similar to what um, the American Association of Forensic Sciences offers when you're board certified, when you're board certified forensic anthropologist. Mm-hmm. And it's basically a label that shows, you know, this office meets our highest standards of training and protocols and facility resources and things like that. Mm-hmm. So I think there's there's been kind of a push for offices to get that accreditation um, and, and to have that and to, to know or to have that label that shows, you know, we are we are following these these standards and we've met these qualifications. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's fascinating. What, what year of your PhD are you currently in? I'm in my second year. Um, I started at UT for my master's. So mm-hmm. technically I've been there for four years, but took two years for master's and now I'm I just went straight through and continued with my PhD. I see, I see. Do you have a good idea of perhaps what you would like to do your thesis on? Yeah, so 
I got really lucky and the work I did for my master's thesis was kind of an initial exploration into the application of a law that protects Native American remains um, and how that works within the medical legal system. Mm -hmm. It was kind of identifying whether they know about the law and and how it works. Um, So I kind of laid some groundwork for myself. And now my dissertation research is going to be taking that research forward. I, I actually have very little idea of how the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, uh, or NAGPRA, as we call it in our field, you know, interacts with uh, the the forensic sciences or uh, with the medical uh, examiner and coroner offices. Is there some background that you can give us about how the two relate to each other? Um, I was surprised that there was really not anything or anything strong, but not much on it. Um, Again, this came up, This the idea for this came up in a very casual conversation about mm-hmm. just the, the interaction between anthropologists and medical legal practitioners and professionals. Um, and the, the colleague I was talking to mentioned that sometimes it's Native remains that are found, and there really wasn't a process for how medical legal individuals should be handling those remains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that got me interested in whether these practitioners were familiar with the law, whether they had protocols for dispositioning these remains, um, or you know, did they just hold on to them, or, or really what was that process? Because in all of my training in undergrad and, and grad school, I'd never really heard of NAGPRA being talked about in relation to medical examiners or coroners. Mm-hmm. And so what I did for my thesis, and, and like you were asking, the literature on it, there really wasn't any. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really couldn't find any reference, even in the law or to people who have worked with the law, mm-hmm. um, on any interaction that they'd really had with medical examiner and coroner offices. Mm-hmm. Um, so my thesis was pretty simple. I, I just wanted to figure out if this was even a problem. Like were there remains in offices across the country? Um, you know, was, was this a problem that, that these offices were having? Mm-hmm. And so I just did a, a survey, um, sent it out to various medical examiners and coroners across the country. Mm-hmm. And I asked them, you know, are, do you know about this law? Have you ever heard of it? If you have heard of it, where did you learn about it? And I asked them a bit about their caseload. So how, how many cases do they get a year? How many of those are determined? Or how many of them come in as just skeletonized remains? Mm-hmm. And then how many of those are later determined to be historic or what we call of, of non-forensic significance? So right. that, that varies by state. Sometimes that's you know the last 50 years, last 75 years, last 100 years. Mm-hmm. That's another kind of weird variable or variant amongst states is, is what they define as being forensically significant or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then how many of those then historic remains were then later determined to be of, of native ancestry. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the survey was also asking them how exactly they went about determining that, especially if they don't employ an anthropologist because it's not standard um, to have an, a forensic anthropologist in a medical examiner's office. Uh, right. there's, there's actually very few of them. Mm-hmm. In, in the United States. When you sent out these surveys, were they surprised? Were they, or, or were they receptive? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> it was, it was a, a super mixed bag. Some people were like, 
yeah, sure, we'll send it out. Let's see what happens. And then there was others that were incredibly resistant to it. Um, I, for my own personal reference, I've, I've saved a few emails from individuals who um, took a very contentious tone with me. Um, they did not want to send out the surveys. They were resistant to the fact that they might even need to consider that this law might apply to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I mentioned that there were some monetary consequences for noncompliance and things like that, that they finally changed their, their tune a little bit. Right. But um, I think in the majority of cases, people were receptive and they were they were helpful. Mm-hmm. Like the president of the National Association of Medical Examiners was really great to work with. She was really receptive. We talked on the phone numerous times. Um, she offered to help in pretty much any capacity that she could, mm-hmm. which was was really encouraging. Um, so I would say by and large, it was a positive response, but there were definitely some some pretty negative ones. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. Uh, and then for those cases, uh, where do you think that that comes from? Well, one, I've had to toe this really tricky line between um, wanting to educate people and really emphasize the importance of this law. Mm-hmm. Um, NAGPRA is, at its core, it's human rights legislation. It provides Native Americans with a legal pathway to reclaim their ancestors that for hundreds of years have just been taken from them um, and put in universities and museums to be studied and looked at and analyzed. Um, And this law solidifies that they have the right to to their family members. Um, And so really trying to relay the importance of the law to people who have never heard of it before is, is kind of tricky. Um, I think within anthropology, the, the weight of the law is clear because anthropology has a role in, in why the law was passed. Mm-hmm. Um, anthropology has a role in studying those remains um, and excavating those remains and curating those remains and all of those things. So I think we have a history attached to it that makes makes the importance really clear. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the medical examiner and coroner system, they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, that that historical significance or kind of that darker history isn't there. Um, and they also didn't learn about it in their training because why would they? Um, and that's obviously no fault of their own. And, and that's been the tricky line that I've had to toe mm-hmm. is that, you know, you, you've never heard of this before. The, the really contextual importance of this is kind of outside of your, your training, outside of your experience. And then here I am showing up and saying, hey, here's this thing that you have to comply with. And here's all these extra things that you have to do mm-hmm. in order to comply with it. And I think for some of them, it's just, um, I mean, headache's a strong word, but it's a process that they just don't want to add into their daily considerations, Mm -hmm. which is understandable. I mean, the idea of identifying, especially for offices that don't have anthropologists, the the idea of identifying remains, um, reaching out to tribes, trying to figure out cultural affiliation of those remains, go through the repatriation process can probably seem really overwhelming. Um, and it it is, it's, it's a, it's a time consuming process if it's done correctly. And I can see that that for some of them, it just doesn't make sense for why they might have to have to do this process or comply with it. Mm -hmm. 
So it's been, it's been a really interesting kind of meshing of worlds, mm-hmm. um, of, of like daily responsibilities and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I kind of, each situation is different and each interaction has been, has been very different, mm-hmm. but it's, it's all been, it's all been a really good learning experience. I suppose like on the other side of the spectrum, um, those offices that were really ready to work with you and to, you know, contribute information to your research uh, and to have these conversations were probably offices where already the, perhaps like the government and the the medical legal system already has a lot of interaction with various nations. And so they already have practice, I guess, of entering these conversations and they would be aware of of the law. Some of them, yeah. For others, I think it was the offering of a protocol or for a set process for um, dispositioning these remains or repatriating them that they didn't have before. So for a lot of offices, Mm -hmm. these remains have just posed a big question mark for them. They haven't known what to do with them. You know, do we, are we supposed to keep these until we can identify them? Because, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the whole goal of a medical examiner corner office is to, if it's an unidentified individual, figure out who they are and give them back to their families mm-hmm. or investigate the death and find out what happened and then close that case. So like open, open cases for these offices are just the complete opposite of, of what it is that they're trying to accomplish in their, in their daily work. Right. And so mm-hmm. for a lot of offices, they end up curating them indefinitely um, a lot of offices I know are like, yeah, you know, we have, we have a room and we just kind of put them on the shelf until someone tells us what to do. Mm-hmm. Um, some offices said that they would transfer them to universities um, and, and let them use them for teaching collections. Other offices said that they would uh, transfer them to an archaeologist or a state archaeologist or a museum, mm-hmm. um, which all of those things make sense, I think, in the context but they also are incredibly problematic mm-hmm. when you break them down. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they all lean towards that idea that these are objects that are good for study or good for teaching or belong in a museum rather than individuals who have a family or who had a resting place mm-hmm. and need to go back to that place. Mm-hmm. Because, um, uh, because of to a lot of... Um communities out there like it's not just about the material remains it's also there's a spiritual connection to them yes definitely Mm -hmm. um and that's and that's the most important part and i think i think a big part of this has been um kind of a delve into kind of medical legal theory if you want to call it that um so you know what exactly does the right to know mean um who does that extend to what time limits are on that if any um and, you know, I think how long do people see remains as an, as an individual mm-hmm. that deserves kind of a, a place to rest and things like that. Um, so a lot of my work has been really talking about how we can incorporate native ideas of time and kinship, um, culture, all of those things into our current medical legal practices, mm-hmm. um, into how they kind of work through their jurisdictions and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea that even though these remains are, as they would label them, non-forensically significant, they still 
fall under, in my mind, that right to know concept. Right. So the right of that tribe or those families to know where these remains ended up, um, what happened to them, where they're resting currently, and, and then how they can get them back to where, where they belong. Because mm-hmm. like you said, the, the cultural component is, is really important. Um, for a lot of tribes, the idea that their remains of their ancestors are not where they're supposed to be, that they're sitting in cardboard boxes on shelves is really discomforting. Um, and they, they attribute the idea that their, their ancestors are not at, rate, at rest to a lot of the uh, problems that they're, they're suffering from now. Mm-hmm. So some tribes call it the, the great sickness. Um, so they attribute the high instances of suicide or alcoholism and things like that on reservations to the fact that their ancestors are not currently at rest, um, to the fact that they're not connected to their ancestors in the way that they're supposed to be. Um, and that the loss of traditions and stories and oral histories and things like that is all connected to the fact that they've been disconnected from their ancestors, that their ancestors have been disconnected from the land, mm-hmm. um, from the um, cultural objects that they were buried with. All of those things are incredibly intertwined. And the disturbance of those ancestors really ha- has a, a lingering weight on these communities. Mm-hmm. Like a biological and uh, physiological, psychological effect. Yeah. Yeah. When the final surveys that you sent out came back, how did you find the experience of wrestling with your data and trying to make sense of what you had collected? Yeah, survey data is um, really interesting, but it's it's difficult to work with at the same time because a lot of it is trying, especially when you have like short answer questions and things like that, where people can can fill in what they want to. <laughs> you're trying to kind of gain the nuances of what people mean by their responses without actually speaking with them. Mm. Um, And so kind of interpreting some of that can be really difficult. And then also with a survey like that, like I said, I've, I've been trying to toe the line between being critical. I never, I, my main goal in all this has not to been not to come across as critical, not to be pointing a finger at these offices and say, Hey, you're doing this wrong. And I'm going to tell somebody it's, Hey, you know, let me help you. Let me teach you about this law, help you implement protocols, show you why this is important, um, show you how to do it, things like that. So Mm -hmm. that I tried to make sure that the survey also didn't come across as critical. I wasn't trying to say, Hey, I gotcha. Right. Anything like that. And so uh, I tried to tailor the questions in that way. But of course, you know, when you're asking people, hey, do you know about this? Do you have a protocol for this? What do you do with these things? It can come across as, oh, maybe I'm not doing something I'm supposed to. So part of it was trying to make sure that people weren't just telling me what I wanted to hear. For sure. Um, they weren't just saying, oh, of course I know about that thing. Why wouldn't I? Right. Like madly Googling as you, <laughs> right after they received the thing. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. So I, the responses were surprising in that about, so I, I got about um, 120 responses, which probably sounds really small, but for surveys, that's, that's huge. That's, that's a relatively big response rate. So I was pretty happy with that actually. Um, and about 50% of them said that they'd heard of the law before, that they were aware of it, that they, they had learned about it in some capacity, which was way higher than what I was expecting. Mm -hmm. 
But then I asked them about, um, you know, if they have a protocol for these remains in their office, like an official written office sponsored protocol and not a single office did. So there was a clear disconnect there. Um, and trying to kind of navigate where that disconnect is coming from has been a, a big focus of the research also. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is it that they know about the law, but they didn't think it applied to their office or they knew about it, but they just weren't familiar enough with it to actually follow the protocols to be compliant with it. Um, was it a higher up that was saying, Hey, no, we're not going to do this. You know, there's, there's a lot of things that could contribute to why they don't actually have a protocol. Yeah. Um, But, you know, a lot of them also indicated on the survey that they believed that the law did apply to their offices, because that was another question that we asked. So, uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to it's really hard to kind of take conglomerated data like that Mm -hmm. um, when it is so individual in nature. Um, Obviously, each office is different everyone's experience is different. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've, I've kind of learned that while the, the overall message is important, um, the individual interactions are also, are are just as important and just as informative going Mm -hmm. forward. Uh, when you were defending your master's thesis, what did you try to present to your panel or your examiners as the main takeaways from this research? And in those conversations, like what did you figure out would be issues that we could explore even further regarding the implementation of NAGPRA? Yeah. Um, there was a couple, major ones. The, I think the biggest one for me was that this, this research, the, the application of MAGPRA to the medical legal system actually provided a really positive path forward. Um, you know, the, the traditional narrative of MAGPRA with universities and museums has always been a contentious one. Um, you know, museums at the, like the, when the law was passed in 1990, mm-hmm. were really fearful that this just meant the, the liquidation of their collections, that everything that museums were responsible for was basically being taken away from them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with universities, there's, there's also been kind of this continuous narrative of kind of the, the contention between, scientific endeavors, and then um, the cultural implications of this for for Native Americans, and that those two things just don't align, which I think we've moved away from that narrative in the last Mm -hmm. 10 years or so, and that a lot of the people who work with this law have actually found that there are a lot of tribes who are just as interested in the science, but they want to be included in it. Yeah. They just don't want these things occurring without their input or without their consent or without the the historical and oral and traditional contributions that they can make to the to the science to the research and the analysis and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, like I was saying, I think NAGPRA has always had this this overall looming um, like reputation for just being this this thing that people don't want to work with that is going to take their skeletal collections away, is going to take their research data away, is going to make it harder for them to do these studies, things like that. Mm -hmm. Whereas in these offices, there's none of that. 
there's, there's none of that like historical weight attached to it. Um, but also the goal of these offices is completely opposite of museums of universities. They're not doing research projects. They're not doing isotopic analysis and, um, carbon dating and all of those things. Mm -hmm. Um, so their, their main goal is, Hey, we want to get these remains to where they're supposed to go and we Mm want to do it the way that we're supposed to do it. And so I think that's a really positive kind of underlying foundation to, to be moving forward from. Mm -hmm. And, and that was kind of the biggest, uh, positive takeaway from me, for me from the thesis research was that by and large, these offices were receptive to this law because it tells them what they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think the other thing, the, the main takeaway from the thesis was how do we include native tribes in this process? How do we learn, I think, from kind of the missteps when NAGPRA was first passed that were occurring in museums and universities? And how do we make sure that native tribes are included and heard from at every step of this process as we're working on implementing this law within the medical legal system. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually been kind of at the core of my work moving forward is, you know, again, um, what do tribes have to say about this process? Um, What do they have to say about their relationship with medical examiner and corner offices? What do they have to say about what this process should look like? And and all of those things. Um, And I think, that's really guided kind of where we've moved with this research and this work going forward. Mm-hmm. It's like ways to creatively or considerately try to do science and, and do investigations and curate these remains, but still be sensitive to the, the, the law of NAGPRA mm-hmm. that hadn't been looked at before, hadn't been creatively figured out before. And that certainly probably comes from anthropology and academia and, and their interactions with uh, native tribes in America, mm-hmm. and that's and that's not to say that there hasn't been individual success stories amongst museums and universities because there most certainly has. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely been institutions that have really been considerate of their responsibilities under the law and have consulted with tribes and built relationships with tribes and have gone about repatriation in a very ethical and responsible way. Um, and I think those are models to work to work off of. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think again that that kind of cloud looming over the law um, is really from when it first passed, and and the the hesitations that people had about it and the fears that people had about it. And I think we've really moved into um, kind of a, a new past when we're talking about repatriation. Um, actually, the, there's a repatriation conference this October, and it's, it's celebrating the 30th anniversary of NAGPRA being passed. And the whole focus of the conference are, is new pass forward. So like new ways of talking about repatriation. Um, what can we learn from success stories? Um, what are kind of like new tools and techniques and things to continue to move repatriation forward and things like that. So I think there's a lot of focus on moving away from kind of that, again, that overlying idea that these, these relationships always have to be contentious and that this process always has to be contentious because it really, it it doesn't need to be. And by a large, by and large, it's not. Um, But again, I think that's just unfortunately a, 
a stereotype that kind of is connected to it. Yeah. So speaking of new directions, is there any uh, scholarship recently or commentary from academics or from people who are you know, working in, in these fields who, that, that really sort of inspires you, really added new elements to your understanding that will be helpful for you in your PhD research? Yep. Um, so there's actually a comic um, it's called Journeys to Complete the Work, and it's by Sonia Adelaide and colleagues. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a really unique way of portraying repatriation. Um, and it, it basically shows a comic of um, a, a successful repatriation story and kind of the unique um, the unique paths that they had to take and how it's... It, it started as a contentious relationship, but then as, as they worked through it, they really came to a middle ground um, and and found a way to, to complete it successfully. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying before, I think other individual unique stories like that have been really inspiring moving forward um, and seeing that, you know, it might be that you have to treat each situation on a case-by-case basis, but also that there's nothing wrong with that. Um, there's nothing wrong with saying, hey, we don't have a coverall, one-way-fits-all one, one approach to doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, it really is about the people involved. And it is really about that individual experience that really dictates how this, this process moves forward. And I think there's something really cool about that. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it really shows the the human side of anthropology um i think it highlights the skills of anthropology at the same time mm-hmm. you know our our bread and butter is is people right at the end of the day and whether they be living or dead um how do we work with people how do we understand people all of those things are all intertwined with this um and so i think that's probably my favorite my favorite part of this research is that it is it's unique it's really individualistic um, every situation is different. Mm-hmm. You have to learn new things from every situation and adapt in every situation. Um, and, and that's been really interesting for me as a, as a student. Um, and then the kind of starting my research career and things like that, I think it's been a really interesting way to, to start that career. Mm-hmm. For your PhD research, uh, when you get to the maybe like the middle stages of of your degree, are you thinking of also doing uh, more survey data and and relying on respondent data, or are you thinking of some other approaches or or methods? Mm-hmm. It's it's gonna be both. Um, so going into this, um, I actually had the opportunity last summer to speak with some tribes about my thesis research, and then um, a grant that. I've received to to do this research going forward. And it was a really eye-opening experience for me. Um, It was with four four tribes that have like a a working group, a a regularly meeting working group. Mm -hmm. And I was able to um, meet with them and basically tell them the results of my thesis and then the work I'm I'm planning on doing moving forward. And their their reaction was... um, humbling to say, to say the least, um, sad at the same time. Um, cause they were really, they were really distraught to hear that they had ancestors in these offices across the country. And it was a, a venue that they had never considered before when talking about repatriation. Cause you mm-hmm. know, obviously their focus has been on getting remains back. 
from museums and universities. Mm -hmm. And so to hear that they had this whole other system, and albeit a, a sometimes confusing system, that they had to now learn how to navigate to, to reclaim their, their remains seemed really discouraging to them. Um, they were thankful that I had, I was there to tell them about it and that I had been working on this, but you could just, you could tell that the information really weighed on them. Um, and so that has kind of been at the core of that, that experience has really stayed with me moving forward in my research. Um, and so a lot of my dissertation research is actually going to be interviews with tribes, um, ethnographic research with tribes, working with them about, you know, what their experience with this law has been. Um, what is it like from their side? Um, you know, the, the law has been around, like I said, for 30 years. And I think it's, it's accomplished some stuff, mm -hmm. but it definitely hasn't fulfilled its mandate. Obviously, there are still remains across the country that haven't been repatriated. There are still cultural objects across the country that haven't been repatriated. Mm -hmm. And so, obviously, it, it hasn't done everything that it's, it's set out to do. And so, I, I'm kind of shifting a little bit in my research. Um, obviously, the core of it is still going to be how do we implement this law in the medical legal system, what resources can we provide to these offices to help them do that? What training can we provide to these offices to help them do that? Mm -hmm. um, all of those things. But then the other side of it is going to be really intensively working with tribes to see, you know, what part of this process just does not work for you. Um, what part of this process might be completely misaligned with your cultural and, and traditional systems um, and it, it, you know, sometimes it's really simple things, which might seem relatively unimportant for us, but like even the time of year that they get remains back. Um, so a lot of times the, the way that the timing of repatriation works, mm -hmm. they sometimes get remains back in the winter, which I mean, I think for most people that wouldn't even be a, a, a thing that crossed their mind as an issue, but then, you know, the ground's frozen, so they can't rebury those individuals, um, which means then that they have to come up with some sort of temporary storage uh, solution. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, a lot of tribes have very strong feelings about handling physical remains, about seeing physical remains, um, the care of those remains. So how are they allowed to be stored in what materials? Um, in what sort of lodging, um, what ceremonies have to be done to protect them while mm -hmm. they're not buried. All of those things are huge considerations for these tribes that probably don't often cross the minds of the people on the other side of repatriation, of the yeah. lawmakers, mm -hmm. of the people doing these things in, in museums. Mm -hmm. um, and even like the way we contact tribes, the way consultations happen, all of those things have all been dictated by those who wrote the law. Um, mm -hmm. And so my, my research is actually really shifting towards this interaction between law and policy and culture um, mm -hmm. and, and what, those, what the interaction of those things look like, what cultural systems are considered when laws are written, when policies written, um, uh, you know, what implications then do, does that law and policy have for the people that it's supposed to be impacting? 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it, it's somewhere that I didn't really see my research going when I first started all of this, but the, the deeper I've gotten into it, the more that I've seen that you can't separate any of these things from each other. You can't, you can't separate the people writing the law from the law and then the people it's supposed to impact. All of those things are, are connected. And, you know, if they're not on the same page, if they don't have the same understandings and the same goals, mm-hmm. then the, the overall goal of the legislation is never going to come to mm-hmm. fruition. As you were speaking, it reminded me of a friend that I have called uh, Felicia Friquet. And on uh, episode 101 of this podcast, I interviewed her about her work where uh, she's an archaeologist. Uh, she studies specifically like the history of slavery in the Dutch Caribbean. Mm-hmm. But as part of her work, uh, besides interpreting the material culture and, and skeletal material, she also looked at oral histories and she uh, interviewed people and did ethnography to get people's understandings of the descendants of enslaved people in in this part of the Caribbean. And when she was interpreting the, you know, the archaeology, at some point in what we do in archaeology, like we have to sort of come up with a narrative about what, what people were doing and their life ways, their lifestyles, um, how they organized their family life or their economic life. What she did actually in those interviews is then try to use those understandings from all history to, you know, add nuance to those interpretations that she derived. Mm-hmm. But then after she um, put together those uh, themes, let's say, that she she discovered in her research, she presented her interpretations back to the people that she interviewed one more time to ask them, you know, I think I've tried to theorize it in this way, but does that make sense? Like the thing, the narrative that I've constructed. And in some cases, um, it aligned with what people thought about their uh, ancestors and other times uh, the history and what she had interpreted didn't make sense. And so this actually sounds like something that as you were speaking, like I thought that, you know, might be good for you to do as well. Yeah, that's a good point. And that's, that's actually something um, I've, I've written into my proposals thus far is that an important part of this for me is that any tribes that I work with really closely um, will be co-authors on my research if, if they'd like to be. Mm-hmm. And that a big part of the analysis will be going through the data with those tribes um, to make sure that, as you were saying, I'm gleaning the appropriate nuances from them um, to make sure that I'm not interpreting something in um, an incorrect way or that I didn't, I didn't make something out of um, a response mm-hmm. or an answer to a question that wasn't really there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, that, that approach, that, that incredibly collaborative approach to research really opens a lot of doors to um, the kind of conclusions that we can come to. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it also you know, for some people, it raises a lot of really interesting questions. So, you know, what do you do when maybe you have a data set that is telling you one thing? Maybe you have an an entirely material data set that, you know, from your archaeological training, from your historical training is telling you one thing, mm-hmm. but then you have um, the people and the oral traditions saying something different. Um, and I think it really, it, I think it brings up a lot of almost philosophical questions for, for researchers, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is the, you know, I'm, I'm doing air quotes at the moment, but like the <laughs> right, the right version of, of history, the correct version of history. Mm-hmm. And can we even say 
can we even say what that is in some of these situations? Um, and, you know, how do you reconcile those two things? So maybe, like I said, if, if the material culture is telling you one thing and the people with those lived experiences are telling you something different, how do you reconcile those two things? How do you, how do you put those two things together to maybe come to a more cohesive um, and holistic representation of, of what you're trying to answer? Um, and I don't have a good solution to that at the moment, mm-hmm. but I, I do think it, yeah, it, it poses a lot of really interesting ethical questions, um, procedural questions, logistical questions. Um, and I think it can be kind of scary for some people because it may cause some people to rethink some of the historical archeological research that's been done. Mm -hmm. And maybe it it might cause some people to look back and say, maybe we need to rewrite some of this or re-examine some of this. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I know. I don't know. Like I said, I, I don't have a good answer to any of those questions, but um, Mm -hmm. it does, it does raise a lot of really interesting ones. Mm I think uh, personally, uh, it is something that uh, maybe only a year or two ago, when I started to engage more with the history of our science and the history of our field, uh, I started to learn to accept that basically this thing that I'm doing, which is growth, professional growth and personal Mm -hmm. learning about colonial history, about the current relationships between institutions and and government and indigenous peoples of the world is, is something that I will constantly be working on for the rest of my life and that's okay it's actually really good mm-hmm. it, you know there's there's work to do basically it's, it's interesting and also very important and it makes the work that we do humanistically crucial yes i i completely agree and that's why i'm really grateful for um the ddhr focus training that i've gotten at ut mm-hmm. because i think it's it's really highlighted for me that um you know there's <laughs> I think it's really easy for us to get really absorbed into the, the really niche research that, that we all do. And of course it's, it's all incredibly important and it's all incredibly interesting, but it's, it's really highlighted for me that it's just one really, really small piece of, of a really large puzzle. And uh, I don't know, it's, you know, we come to our, our research conclusions. We, we come to, you know, whatever statistical, the conclusion of whatever statistical analyses we do, you know, all, all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it's, it's become incredibly obvious to me that we have to take whatever that conclusion is and then fit it into whatever that larger puzzle is. It's not enough to just say, Hey, I found this. Mm-hmm. It's, what is the interaction between what you found and what everyone else has found surrounding that topic as well. And everything, like um, everyone that it will impact as well, what those findings, uh, what those implications of those findings might be. Exactly. And, and that's the, that's the most important piece to me is that, okay, what, what does this conclusion, what does this data, what does this result, like you were saying, mean for the people that it actually impacts? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, after my thesis, I, I hadn't really had the opportunity to speak with tribes yet. Um, and that meeting I was referring to before, like I said, that was the first time that I really had the ability to talk to them, relay those results to them and kind of talk about what this means for them. Mm -hmm. And like I was saying before that, that single experience has been the most informative to me out of everything that I've done so far with my research. Um, Mm -hmm. 
you know, what those results meant for their daily life, um, mm-hmm. for their jobs, for their responsibilities. It, it had, and it was obvious from their reactions, it had a tremendous impact on them. Um, and that wasn't something I would have ever gotten from just my simple survey results or from my conclusions had I not spoken with these individuals, had I not um, had the opportunity to relay the results to them and see what they meant for for these tribes. And I think that is, again, another benefit that anthropology has is, you know, our our humanistic training kind of pushes us towards doing that type of thing. Um, mm. you know, what does this mean for people at, at the, at the core of it? Um, and like I said, it was, it was really rewarding and, um, and it's, it's really, it's really driven, like I said, how I've moved forward with my research. Mm-hmm. Were you able to do that in, uh, Tennessee? Um, no, that was actually in Arizona. Um, I had the opportunity last summer. So, um, a big collaborator of mine, a really important person in this research is, is Dr. Bruce Anderson. He's the forensic anthropologist at the Pima County office of the medical examiner. Mm -hmm. And his office is actually the only medical examiner's office in the country that has complied with NAGPRA. Um, So he's done an inventory. He's filed a notice of inventory completion and now he's actually successfully repatriated two cases, so two, two individuals to a tribe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I interviewed him for my thesis um, about, you know, how he knew he should be complying with it, you know, what that process looks like in the office and things like that. And then I was actually able to go there this past summer and I worked, I worked there over the summer and helped him continue working on uh, NACPRA cases. So mm-hmm. I, I kept doing inventories for him and filing notices and, and things like that. Um, so it, I, it was through a connection with him that I was able to attend mm. the meeting. Um, yeah. and it was, uh, you know, even his experience in the office, he, like I was saying before, kind of that that's the, that difference between offices that have anthropologists and those that don't. So it's not the medical examiners at his office. It's not the pathologists that are, are going through this process. It's him, him, the anthropologists that, that are filing these notices, mm-hmm. doing the inventories, things like that. So I saw how difficult it was for him to do it as a trained anthropologist mm-hmm. with the resources and the time that he has because they're an incredibly busy office being so close to the U S Mexico border. Mm -hmm. They have a lot of those cases that they take care of. So it it really, um, highlighted for me how difficult this process might be for offices that don't employ an anthropologist Mm -hmm. and how that's a whole nother realm or a whole nother set of issues that need to be considered moving forward. Mm-hmm. Um, about how we go about implementing this law and things like that. Yeah, I was just thinking that, you know, uh, I've never worked in America. I've only visited sometimes for the uh, conferences, but I can imagine it might be really meaningful to do it in the states where you currently work or even where you're from, like New Jersey, for example, to to try and work with medical offices uh, in those contexts specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and that's actually so um, myself, Dr. Anderson, and then um, my other main colleague, Dr. Ellen LaFaro, who's actually our, our curator and our NAGPRA, our, head, our NAGPRA coordinator at the University of Tennessee. The three of us um, were awarded a National Institute of Justice grant um, that was part of a solicitation that they put out for um, a tribal researcher capacity building grant. 
Mm-hmm. And the the whole the whole purpose of the of the grant and the research is um, to travel to various medical examiner offices across the country. So we have six lined up right now. Um, and, and the grant is to go to these offices, help them with their inventories, help them kind of navigate the process, learn what the process is, and then also to connect them with tribes near them um, to start building these relationships, to, to start lines of communication between these offices and tribes that they might work with kind of regularly now if, if they go about this process. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the focus has really been, you know, how do we how do we bring this information to offices? How do we give them the tools to do what they're being asked to do? And then how do we make sure that they have, how do we go about showing them how to build these relationships or Mm -hmm. encourage them to build these relationships with, with tribes. Mm -hmm. Um, And another piece of it is that all this data that we collect at these offices. So, how many cases do they have? Um, any contextual information associated with them? Mm-hmm. The goal is to to build a database for tribes to use. So it'll basically show them a map of the United States. Um, it'll break down for them in each state what their medical legal system looks like. So you know, is it a corner? Is it an ME? Is it mixed? Is mm-hmm. it regional? Whatever it might be. Um, and then ideally, they'll be able to basically click on each office. It'll show them the staff. So this is your medical examiner. This is your anthropologist. This is your coroner. Contact information for them, things like that. And then ideally, it'll have kind of a breakdown of what cases they have there. So, you know, they have Mm -hmm. five sets of non-forensically significant native remains. This is any contextual information that's associated with them. Um, This is what stage of the NAGPRA process that they're at. You know, they've submitted inventories for them or they've submitted notices um, those notices have been published on the federal register, mm-hmm. whatever it might be. And ideally that is going to be a tool that tribes can use to then initiate, um, repatriations to initiate claims. Mm-hmm. So ideally it'll be kind of a consolidated place that these tribes can go to, to get an idea of what the situation across the country looks like, how many remains are in offices, what offices are near them, um, what offices might have remains affiliated with them. And then ideally it'll give them all the contact information that they need to make claims on those remains. So the idea is really to put, um, to put the information in the tribe's hands, uh, then they can go about the process Mm -hmm. the way that they would like to, rather than all these offices trying to contact them and reach out to them, it gives the tribes the the autonomy to really do it yeah. in the manner that they would like to do it. Hmm. That's excellent. I, I think that sounds great. Yeah, we're, we're excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind me asking, like, what do your family or uh, perhaps friends who don't do anthropology think about you uh, pursuing this research? Have you had a lot of engaging conversations? Yeah, uh, definitely. My family has always been really supportive of me. Um, I think when I first told them, you know, I want to go to UT, my dad actually came in and visited with me. And when he saw like the forensic anthropology center and the collections and things like that, he kind of gave me a look and was like, this, this is what, this is what you wanted to do. Um, <laughs> and, and not in a like discouraging way, just in a like, Oh, Hey, okay. If, if, if this is it, then this is it. Um, 
but yeah, I've, I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with people. One, because this is something that a lot of people had no idea about. Mm -hmm. Um, when you, when you tell people that there's hundreds of thousands of native remains sitting in institutions across the country that were taken from them, their, their eyes kind of like open wide and they're like, what? Um, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's kind of a, it's just one of those things that has been going on for a really long time, but people don't, don't necessarily know a ton about. Um, I've definitely had a couple of conversations with, with people who are like, Oh man, that's so sad that you, that they have to give all those back. Um, and I think that's remnants of people thinking that, Oh, it's so great that we get to study these collections, that that's a resource that you have and you can learn so much about Mm -hmm. these people that don't exist anymore. And that, that's probably been the main narrative that I've, I've experienced in conversations is that people are like, oh, wow, uh, oh, there's, there's still a lot of Native Americans. I mean, it, it sounds terrible to say it like that, but that's, that's a question that I've gotten mm-hmm. many times from people. Um, and I think that just goes back to kind of what's taught in history classes here, mm-hmm. the way that um, like colonial Native interactions are portrayed, how the history of the United States government and tribal governments is portrayed. And a lot of people just think of them as this like historical remnant, as like a a group of people that don't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't be more opposite than that. Um, Right. Like people don't know like that the history that, um, you know, looks to have produced like a really great country, a lot of people aren't (laughs) aware of like the cost. That, yeah. that like the cost to some other people yes. in that negotiation. Yes, it, for sure. And you know the the idea that you know all these big anthropological studies that have happened, all these big skeletal collections that we use are at the expense of an entire group of people and their rights, their most basic rights, um, is is not something that that really crosses a lot of people's minds very often. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, a lot of my kind of more informal conversations have have gone down that road of just, you know, maybe take a more critical approach to the history that you're taught about these relationships, um, of the way that Native histories are portrayed, of the way that again, U.S. government and, and tribal government uh, relationships are portrayed and, and just, you know, dive into them a little more critically or, or think of them a little more critically uh, and, and kind of maybe try to see them for what they, what they actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, in my experience, at least, like sometimes doing a PhD can be um, a little bit uh, stressful, especially like if you are doing um, your research on subjects that might be a little bit more uh, emotionally charged. Mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you do to um, manage that? And, and how, what do you think about that? Are there things that you do that, you know, help you to unwind? Yeah. Um, I'm a big runner. Um, I, I try to run pretty much every day. Um, and, and something running has been something that's been part of my life since I was, um, a, a young kid, mm-hmm. but, um, it, it really wasn't until graduate school that it became this, this release for me. Um, it's something, you know, it's an hour to a day that I can step out of, out of research, out of casework, out of kind of often reading about rather depressing things. Um, and, you know, take time to kind of readjust, 
center myself, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's also for me, it's been a really good like writing and kind of workshopping time for myself. Also, I, I find myself routinely having some of my best ideas or like writing my best sentences for papers or proposals in my head while I'm running. Cool. And maybe it's cause I've like taken myself out of that, out of that place. But, um, I also think, uh, it, some of the approaches are the same. So like with endurance running, you know, it's doing a little bit each day to, to work towards this long-term goal and you can't necessarily see the finish line at the time, which I think is very akin to graduate school and working towards a, a degree is that you're doing these kind of minute things each day, these little steps each day mm-hmm. to get you to this bigger goal that like sometimes you can't, you can't see, uh, you know, it's there, you know, it's there off in the future, but mm-hmm. um, it, it's going to take you a long time to, to get to that point. So I kind of, I think they have very parallel, um, mindsets. Yeah. I mean, yeah. PhD is a marathon. Yeah, for sure. Having run a number of marathons, I'm, I'm glad you're not as sore <laughs> or as <laughs> physically drained sometimes after uh, schoolwork, but yeah, it's a, it's a very similar, a very, very similar approach. I had people in my lab who were researching, uh, you know, human biology, like in, in living athletes and people who would do ultra marathons. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you've done a few of those? Yeah, I've done two. Okay. Two 50Ks. Yeah. What, what, oh, 50Ks. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, uh, to me, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've done that a number of times. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, oh, um, what made you um, want to do that? Like, uh, what, what made you, what motivated you to, to go and actually try and achieve something that very few people can achieve? I think it's, again, I, I think it's that, those aligning personalities. Um, you know, I, each time I've, I've finished the distance. So you know, I did my first half marathon in undergrad and then I did my first marathon when I started graduate school, my first year of graduate school. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just that, that desire to, to keep exploring, to, mm-hmm. to dive deeper, to, to see what you can do, to see what else is out there. And I think, a lot of that is what motivates people to, to do a PhD. I mean, you have to have some, you have to have a a base level of curiosity to do this. You know, why else would you be like, okay, I'm going to spend the next five, six, seven, eight years of my life really diving in and exploring this one thing, this one topic, this one area of research. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think the motivation is the same. Um, you know, and, and a lot of it's also like, what exactly can I do? Um, you know, the, the most interesting part of running for me is that sometimes when you think you're at your limit, when you think you're, you're done, you somehow find a way or you find the motivation or the inspiration to keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's just really fascinating to see where your mind goes during those times. I mean, the last 50K... I did took me six and a half hours. Um, and it's really interesting to just see kind of where the places that your mind goes when you're doing that. Um, the things that you think about the, the things that you reflect on the, I don't know. It's, it's just, it's really, it's really interesting to, to learn things about yourself Mm -hmm. in, in that, in that setting. Yeah. Uh, I, I've never done that, but you know, uh, in, in some other ways, like I, I do feel like, um, you know, yeah, yeah, there are things that I've done that I don't think, um, many, uh, 
many people would even consider doing like producing a podcast with over a hundred right. episodes, but right. <laughs> it's sort of like when you do these things, it, it kind of then sort of translates to other areas of your life. And you're like, well, there's nothing really I can't conquer because mm-hmm. look at this thing that I've already done. Yeah, definitely. Um, and also I think knowing that feeling of accomplishment is a really big motivator. Um, knowing how it feels to really, really put yourself into something and to really give it all that you can give it and knowing the feeling that awaits you on the other side, Mm -hmm. um, is, is a really, is a really big motivator for me a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that again, maybe you're doing a smaller amount of effort each day or, you know, when you're up all night finishing that term paper or you're up all night finishing that proposal or whatever it might be, knowing that like there's a reason that you're doing those things, that, mm-hmm. that there is a, there's an outcome that you're hoping for. And when you get that, it's, it's the best feeling in the world. So um, yeah, that's really good. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that message. Well, I really want to thank you for making a showing on the podcast. Where can people find you online if people have any questions or they want to follow all of those outcomes that, uh, you know, inevitably in the next few years you are going to have? Sure. Um, I have a student page um, with the University of Tennessee. If you just Google me, it's like one of the first things that pops up. Um, I do have social media. It's not public, but um, if anyone... I, uh, I, I post some running stuff on there and, and I post some progress on there. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm always at the AFS conference and I'm at various conferences around and, and things like that. But, um, people are always welcome to email me or, or reach out cause I love talking about this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. I love other people that are interested in it because I think it brings, it brings a lot to the table. So so yeah. <laughs> um, and I know that you had listened to a few episodes before this. Um, at the end of the show, I like to ask the guests if they can come up with a hashtag to do with something that we've talked about or something funny, something meaningful to you. you think of a good hashtag for your episode. Yeah. Um, let's do hashtag NAGPRA MEC. <laughs> and what does that mean? That's just the, the shorthand for medical examiner and coroner office. Oh. It's just, yeah, it's just referred to as MEC offices. Okay. That's good. <laughs> Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, then let us know on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at Arcananth Pod. Thank you so much to the patrons who keep the show going. Uh, I couldn't speak to wonderful guests like Megan if it weren't for you supporting the show every month. If you listening to this right now want to support the show as well and keep this public anthropology project going, then go to patreon.com slash arcananthpod and you can find out how you can help us out. New episodes of the podcast will come out on arcananth.com where I will upload more information and links to Megan's work. And you can also find new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Megan, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. Thank you. It was was really fun to be here. Yeah. Uh, And I will maybe speak to you again on the show when you are further along in your PhD. Yes. Hopefully I'll have some some good updates for you. (laughs) Listeners, I'll have another episode out for you soon. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you.